and welcome to Sound Business from VoiceWorks, a podcast all about the business of sound. I'm Jim Salverson and on this series we'll be covering everything from the marketing potential of smart speakers to the importance of sonic branding, right the way through to the latest developments in podcasting, whilst I speak to some of the most informed and innovative individuals in the audio industry. Today, we start with podcasting and one of the biggest questions in the industry. How do you create a chart-topping podcast? Trying to answer that impossible question is Sam Walker, the brains and the voice behind American Vigilante, a podcast that has topped the Apple podcast charts both sides of the Atlantic and one of the podcasting success stories of 2021. Sam is a former radio bod, having worked across various commercial and BBC radio stations, including BBC Five Live. A few years ago, she upsticked and she moved to Phoenix in the USA, a journey that she charts in another one of her podcasts, Desert Diaries, which recently picked up gold at the British Podcast Awards. In other words, Sam knows her stuff. If you're interested in the world of audio, I assume that's why you're listening to this podcast, please do follow wherever it is you are listening to me right now in your podcasting app because I've got some great guests lined up for this series and you can find out more about audio and how VoiceWorks could potentially help you to unleash its power at the website voiceworks.ai. But first, enjoy Sam Walker answering podcasting's big question. Sam Walker, how are you and where are you? Hi, Jim. How are you? Very nice to speak to you. Um, I'm currently sitting in a voice booth, my voice booth, which is a fitted out closet. But luckily it's an American closet, so it's quite big. So it's much better than anything I probably had would have been able to set up in a home in the UK. But I'm in Phoenix, Arizona, in the desert, talking to you from a cupboard. Now, from a purely geeky technical point of view i've done a few interviews with people stateside actually recently and they've been in really hot climates Mm -hmm. and the bane of my life is air conditioning so as you're in the desert when you're doing podcasts is it a case of going right air conditioning off i'm gonna just sweat for the next 60 minutes and then turn it back on and have a nice cold drink afterwards Well, Phoenix, Arizona is the hottest city in the United States. So in the summer, you're talking temperatures, daily temperatures of around 45 degrees plus. So it's not really possible to exist without air conditioning. The good thing is that because such hot weather is such a massive part of daily life here, it's not like you have big air conditioning units sort of in the side you know there's sort of big things Mm. that look like big tanks it's all within the house system so it's actually super quiet i'm in my closet which doesn't have air conditioning so what i found when i'm recording i mean if obviously i'm producing that's fine i just turn my sound off and have my door cracked open so the cool air can come in but if i'm recording super long podcasts i do literally have to crack the door open about every 10 minutes or i would expire Well, we'll talk a little bit more about why you're stateside in a minute, because that plays an important part in the story of what you're doing now and of American Vigilante as well, which obviously, as I touched on in the intro, has been an absolutely huge success. So I guess let's start off by answering the question. What's the secret? How do you create a chart topping podcast? It starts with a story. (laughs) It starts with a story. Every single we know, don't we, that every single piece of audio we make tells a story. 
whether it's a news story, whether it's a personal journal story, whether it's based on an interview that's that's targeted towards a certain members of the audience. Everything is a story. Mm. And I did a talk at She Podcasts recently, um, a big podcasting conference here in the States, when I talked about this and said, you know, I started off and I really began to understand that when I started in radio and I was quite late to the radio game. I didn't start till 2000 and or thereabouts, 2002 maybe. And um, and I remember I was reading The Travel and Weather on a breakfast show and kind of laughing at the at the male presenter's jokes, you know, as was the shtick, the trope mm-hmm. back in the day, even though he was very genuinely funny and lovely. And I, I read The Travel and the Weather out and I remember my boss saying to me at the time, don't forget you're telling a story. And I said, well, I'm just saying there's roadworks on the M, you know, M25. What are you talking about? And he said, no, 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 you're telling a story to, to the people listening about how their day's going to go. Are they going to be late for school because there's roadworks? Are they going to miss that job interview or that important meeting because there's a crash? Are they going to get soaked coming home from work, ready to get on the bus because you didn't tell them it was going to rain? And so that really changed the way that I even started to talk to an audience. That's where, really where mm. it all started. So a hit podcast, it starts with an amazing story. And it, dis- and it, it then the next stage is, well, OK, how do you decide the narrative of that content? You don't decide the narrative based on the content, you decide the narrative based on who your audience are. And that's really at the heart of it. Anything. I wasn't expecting you to actually be able to answer that, but that is a brilliant answer. <laughs> and it, do you know what? It's, it's, a re- it's a really good thing for someone to remember, whatever their interest in audio, whatever level of podcasting or radio that they're into, being able to communicate and communicate a story and draw someone in is the centre of anything engaging. Yeah, 100%. And it doesn't matter. I talked about shows I've worked on here in the States. One was a show that was directed to executives within the CX space, the customer Mm. experience space. And it was how cloud-based ERP software can really help enhance the customer experience for your clients. And you might already be asleep, Jim. You might think, oh, (laughs) you know, another show I did was about financial technology. So fintech and how fintech was affecting the future of community banks and credit unions. Again, you might think, I can genuinely tell you, 100% honestly, I enjoyed crafting the narratives for those shows. Mm. I did. Because I went in and I was like, what's the story? Who are the audience? What's the audience pain point? What do the audience need to get? How do you fill that that sort of void that the audience have? And if you're, you know, a manager of a credit union in Kansas, well, you find out about that person and what what's affecting them and what issues do they have? And then you find the solution through your content and through your narrative. Mm. And both of those shows... I learned really interesting stuff and genuinely enjoyed working on those narratives. You know, it wasn't quite as mind-blowing as American Vigilante, but Mm. I was like, huh, that never occurred to me about, hmm, that's it, you know. And I think if you can do that as a producer, if you can find a way to tell a story where you are genuinely engaged, you know your audience will be. There'll be plenty of podcasts in this series talking about branded content and exactly the stuff that Sam's talking about to come. But let's focus on America Vigilante, which is a story in itself. It's a phenomenal success story. Start me at the beginning here, because how did it work from an ideation point of view? Was it a story that you had on the back burner for a while and then you found the facility to make it reality by working with the crowd network? Or was it the objective of the crowd network you've been in partnership with that they had this idea of they wanted to move into crime podcasts they wanted to move into podcasts that were appealing both sides of the Atlantic so where was the starting point for this well the starting point was KC there was no there was no bigger picture in terms of we want to achieve this so therefore we will go and find 
someone, something to achieve that. Mm. It started with KC and I can't go into details of how I was introduced to KC, but I was introduced to KC and crowd were introduced to KC. And we spoke together about whether we were going to take this huge leap of faith because Casey, if you've listened to the podcast is not someone you can sit and fact check. Mm. You know, the person who introduced us to Casey, I spoke to and did as much due diligence as I could about the veracity of this man and what he has done. But we are dealing with somebody who by the very nature of what they do has stayed outside the law and has made sure that they leave Noah's Casey would put it breadcrumbs. He, you know, a, a lot of people, and I'm jumping ahead a bit, but people have got in touch with me, listeners, and said, haven't you checked whether that kidnapped girl was kidnapped? Okay, well, you, you, you believe me, I've done a lot of due diligence on this, but you Google kidnapped girl America, because that's pretty much mm. all the information we get. You know, so... You you can't sit and go through and nitpick and, and find, you know, and find out everything he's talking to me about is with outside the seven year statute of limitations, because he's also someone who's been doing this a long time and knows if some of the things he talks about absolutely need to be outside that statute of limitations. So it really started with Casey. It started with an introduction. It started with an with email a to that I had. A podcast. Was that kind of like you were looking for someone or was it a case that you stumbled across a story and then the creative cogs start working and you think, we've all been there. We've all talked to someone and gone, this is a great story. I want to get you into a studio and talk you talk to this story. Or was it more, was there more legwork on your part in terms of actually identifying this person? No, it was it was a case of an introduction. I mean, clearly, Crowd and I work in audio. That's mm. what we do. So it was it was clear that there was on a table that we could have discussions about this. Casey was a is at a stage in his life where he wants to tell his story. He hasn't spoken to anybody, but he was very, very nervous. Is the wrong word. He's not a man who gets nervous. <laughs> <laughs> very cautious of who he was going to speak to. He didn't let me see his face. He had to trust me. And he has told me on multiple occasions, I chose you, Sam. So he was someone who was prepared to start to open up. I think once our conversations began, it went to places he didn't imagine they would go to. But I mean, from a journalistic point of view, it was an extraordinary experience because I was with this man and we can go into technical details, but, you know, I didn't know where he was. I didn't see his face for a long time. And I didn't know what he was going to tell me. Mm. I knew he was going to tell me stories about things that he says he has done, missions, rescues, whatever you want to call them. I didn't know where they were going. I, I couldn't sit here and prep. You know, you know we know as, as presenters, as hosts, as journalists, you know, you do your prep, you do your due diligence. And I did as much as I could and I learned as much as I could about things like bounty hunters and vigilantes and mercenaries and this kind of world, which is just mind blowing and is absolutely present in America today and well, in lots of other countries around the world, too. But I couldn't sit and go, right, today he's going to talk to me about X, Y and Z. And therefore, I know to challenge him on A, B and C. You know, I, mm. I couldn't do that because I didn't know what he was going to say, which was, well, it meant that sometimes and I spent hours and hours and hours thinking about what he'd said to me after we'd finished recording for that day. I would then go back and go, do you remember when you said to me that you were in Mexico and you were rescuing those kidnapped executives and you said that you walked in and, that, you know, and I, would, I would remember then and I'd go, that doesn't quite make sense to me. Mm. You know, so there was, there was a lot of that going on. 
Does that then make it difficult, going back to what you were saying about building a story and that being the important element, does that make it difficult to build mm. that story because you can't plan ahead? And I think this podcast has a lot of your story in it. It's about your journey of yeah. your relationship with Casey building and we should probably fill in the gaps that Casey, you hinted it there, he's kind of a bounty hunter slash gun for hire that helps find kidnapped kids. And in general, you kind of get the idea he potentially is one of the good guys, albeit one of the good guys doing bad things. So if you haven't listened to the mm. podcast, that's kind of a very quick, quite clumsy overview. But that gives you an idea of where Sam's coming from when she's hinting at things that can't be talked about. But in terms of telling that story, was it then important to inject yourself into that? Because it has to be your relationship with Casey that becomes the central point, because that's what's happening as you're having these meetings and these conversations. Well, exactly. So you've hit the nail on the head in terms of this wasn't going to be some polished, presented as fact. This is mm. a man and he has rescued these kidnapped children. He has trekked across the wastelands of Canada for three months to find a paedophile who abused three little girls to find that man, package him up, bundle him up and smuggle him back across the US border to deliver him to those girls' families who have paid him to go and find this man. How do you fact check that? You can't. Mm. I mean, where do you even begin? So it wasn't ever going to be a, here is a fact. And I think this is where it becomes really interesting because for Casey, this is his life and his reality. And I've said to him, if I'm going to do this, I need to be honest with you. I don't know if I believe everything you say. I'm definitely not going to agree with everything you say. I don't think I'm going to like everything you say. I am going to challenge you. And he was like, bring it on. So I think it was setting up that relationship from the start. And he would quite often say, you don't understand you're British. But I've lived here in the United States for two and a half years now. And I live in I live in the Wild West, Jim. I live in Phoenix, Arizona. And, you know, you've known me for 15 years. And mm. you'll know that, you know, the States is somewhere I would come every year. I'd visit loads of places. I mean, New York, I was at every five minutes. L.A., San Diego, Colorado. I would always kind of move around and, and try and visit different cities. There is nowhere like the Wild West of the US. And if you think you know the States because you've been to Florida for two weeks on a Disney holiday, that sounds really patronising. It's not meant to be because that was me for years and years and years. <laughs> you do not know. You do not know what this country's like. And it is a huge culture shock when you move here. But it's almost like a slow creep of a huge culture shock because you think you know America because we've watched all the movies and we've watched all the TV shows and we think we know what life is like. And then you're like, whoa, okay. <laughs> So it is, it is different. So, you know, a few people have said to me, oh, how ridiculous. Of course, there isn't someone going around and rescuing children. The police would know. And it's like, no, they wouldn't. It's a huge country. There are communities who live off grid here. There are people who you might call hillbillies. I mean, you know, who live off grid, whole communities. They do not bother the police. The police do not bother them. They're the sort of people, if something happens within, they will go to someone like KC and say, sort this out. You know, the police aren't part of their lives in any way, shape or form. This is such a vast and these can be big communities. We're not talking three people and a dog in a shack. We're talking thousands of people. So there is so much going on in this country, which, you know, I don't even understand because I've only been here two and a half years. But in the Wild West it is very, very different. So he would say to me, you don't understand that you're British. And I'll be like, well, no, but I'm kind of getting there. I, I see people with guns on their hips walking around supermarkets gym as it you know as a regular thing it is a very different world so as I said I said to him you know I'm going to be honest with you this is I'm not going to believe everything you say and that's really where we had to go because it was a journey I sat mm. down with this man I don't know his real name to this day I don't know where he lives we delivered equipment to a PO box which he told us was a couple of hours away from where he lived so we don't know where he lives the states is huge he lives off grid we know that he doesn't record in his home 
he travels to a, an office space, rented office space. So it had to be a journey of discovery. It wasn't ever going to be presented as this is a fact. So it was a case of sitting down, recording about 50 or 60 hours of our conversations and going from there. And and then, again, going back to creating that narrative and how you think, well, OK, you don't create your narrative based on your content alone. You based your narrative based on who your audience is. We know, don't we? I mean, you know me, Jim. We met when we were both working at XFM. Mm. I was also working for BBC Radio Manchester at the time. My two shows were utterly different on those two stations. I remember one time interviewing Tom Jones for XFM and then the same day interviewing him for BBC Radio Manchester. Completely different <laughs> interviews because they were completely different audiences. Mm. You always think about your audience. And I think the key point that so many creatives forget is not just asking who your audience are, but really digging deep into how they're going to listen, where they're going to listen, what their life looks like. Are they able to listen for five minutes or an hour? You know, what's going on in their world? But asking, how do you want your audience to feel? That is the absolute key point in creating anything. How do you want your audience to feel? Mm. And once you've answered that question, in this case, it was like, well, I can't really drill down my audience because this is going to be for people of, of all genders, all religions, all races. You know, we want people from different every class to listen. You know, this isn't going to be, oh, this is for women over 40 in in England. Absolutely not. This is this is a really wide reaching thing. So then the key question was, how do we want them to feel? And I said, well, I want the audience to feel exactly as I felt when I first was given that introduction of what the heck is going on? Who is this guy? Mm. Is he for real? Which, when you look at the conversation that's happened around this podcast on social media and online, that is exactly what people are asking. And that is the intrigue. And I think it's interesting you raise the point of how do you fact check this stuff and your journalistic standards and not being able to do that. Mm. Because there's there's got to be a balance of truth and entertainment. But ultimately, the entertainment of this podcast feels like it comes from people asking that question of trying to work out for themselves whether this KC character is a fantasist or whether he's completely telling a 100% straight down the middle story. And, you know, without getting too deep, I think the kind of very polarised world that we live in, uh, the very binary world that we live in at the moment, where you are either absolutely right or absolutely wrong, or you must feel this way or you must feel that way, and you can't possibly... There's that... We've lost the concept of two things can be true, right? We've totally lost that concept. And I've had so many angry messages from that guy and I always use that phrase that guy that was the guy that when I was on BBC Radio 5 Live that guy would text me to tell me how rubbish I was at my job that guy would tell me I can't believe you didn't say that you know that guy and that guy is out in full force with this podcast because that guy has told me point blank that I'm an idiot I've been taken for a ride oh you stupid dumbass woman I can't believe and I was like I literally say in the first 30 seconds of the podcast I'm not (laughs) sure if I believe him let's go on the journey but that guy never wants to hear the facts so I think you know two things can be true this Casey can have done these things but he can have also completely embellished his part in the story we all do that when we tell a story about something in our life of course we make ourselves the hero of the story and in a way Casey is an incredible storyteller so maybe he didn't smash the door open and get his gun on his hip and mow down the drug dealers maybe it didn't quite work like that But actually, he's a great storyteller. Did he go into that drug house, though, and clear those drug dealers out of there? If it didn't happen in exactly the same way, does that make him a liar? These are really interesting questions I think we all need to ask ourselves. But there's, you know, as I said, in this completely polarised world where people feel they have to take an opinion on everything, 
and absolutely not even consider the opinion of someone who feels differently. Being in the grey area, being in the I don't know, I think is really, really uncomfortable for a lot of people. Going back to the format of this podcast slightly, I think it's unusual in the way it's constructed and it kind of stands apart from what I would class as its contemporaries, shows like S-Town and shows like Serial, who were hugely successful but went around their production in a really different way, had the same narrative style, Mm. but that was locations, it was voices, it was investigative journalism, whereas here we've got a one-on-one interview, which is really quite a stripped-back not basic format, but I guess it's going back mm. to the the hearts, the kind of roots of podcasting to a certain extent, but it's experiencing similar, if not the same success. Obviously, there's a necessity with this particular story. It had to be done in this way. There would have been very difficult to tell it in a different way because you've got a man who doesn't want to meet you, doesn't want to show his face. But do you think there's an element of the way podcasting has developed in the last 18 months during a pandemic where people can't go out and they can't meet other people that we're returning to that simpler content where podcasting made its name and involving ourselves in intimate conversations that really was at the center of the medium in those early days I guess. I think yes and no I think we don't have to have the ridiculous all singing all dancing jazz hands I'm going to be in 15 different locations within the first 10 minutes of this podcast you don't need to have that Mm. to create a really strong engagement with your audience Look at the number of podcasts that are still intro music, interview, outro music. Not to denigrate that, a lot of the podcasts I make are exactly that. And again, it's, well, who are your audience and how do you want your audience to feel? And once you can really kind of lock in on those two things and you can still make really creative content in that way. I think it shows that you do not have to have a cast of thousands working on a production to make it really really fly you just need to really know your shit (laughs) everyone involved and you know Steve Jones who was my producer on this I you know I cannot speak of him highly enough I mean just brilliant and knew exactly when to let me kind of off the rope well which was pretty much all of it but you know he wasn't someone who would sit there all over me going ask this ask this ask this because he Mm. trusted me And he knew that this podcast was about mine and Casey's relationship and letting me discover with the audience what the heck was going on, if indeed we do discover what the heck is going on. But then also, you know, Phil Brown, who's done the sound design on this and the editing is just he's just brilliant. And he is he's captured it. And, you know. We do the voiceover sessions together and he's done such an incredible job. And I think the two of them are what have made this whole thing fly in a way that it might not have. You know, Mm. it's their brilliant take on it all. And of course, we've sat and and discussed kind of bigger picture stuff of, okay, well, what will we do with that bit? And where do we introduce that bit? And potentially other people who may come along, I shall say no more. But, you know, when do we do that? So, of course, there's been those kind of bigger conversations around narrative structure. But those two have just been brilliant. They're brilliant. I think going back to the sound design, I always think that sound design and production is doing its job best when you don't notice it, when it's almost effortlessly there and it just becomes part of the story and it just kind of elevates everything that's going on but doesn't interrupt it in any way. And that's 100% the case on this particular podcast. I think what you're saying about stories and that's how you create a great podcast, a chart-topping podcast, is 100% true. It's certainly part of the puzzle, but at the same time, that kind of if you build it, they will come mentality Mm. doesn't always ring true and there's 
hundreds of podcasts out there who are brilliant stories, are great content, and they never get the listeners they deserve. So how do you make sure that a podcast like this gets that attention? Because Crowd have got their own platforms, you've got a social media presence, but you're not Gemma Collins and it's not on BBC Sounds. So the machine isn't behind it to the certain extent. So how do you find that audience? to? And once it's there, it can grow and you can appear in charts and whatnot, obviously. But how do you give it that kickstart at the start? Well, that's the question, isn't it, Jim? (laughs) That's what every single person who creates everything just goes, oh. And, I mean, we could have a five-hour-long discussion about that. You know, there are obviously tried and tested ways to give things a kickstart, and that's things, you know, like RSS swaps and trailer swaps and, you know, appearing on other podcast feeds and all the rest of it and going to the audience that you that another podcast has that you know will also like your podcast and either doing mutual deals with them or buying some time or whatever it might be that's definitely a way to kick start but I mean I don't think American Vigilante has reached a bazillionth of its audience yet Mm. you know it is still a huge huge issue to try and get out there. I mean, I look at the podcast that I make since moving here, Sam Walker's Desert Diaries, you know, and it's a 10-minute audio postcard of the absolute madness of moving from Manchester, the suburbs of Manchester, to the Wild West, to the desert in Arizona. And, you know, what's happened over the last two years has been really funny, really frustrating. At times, genuinely frightening things have happened. And that audience in compared to Vigilante is absolutely teeny tiny. And you mentioned social platforms. It's funny, even the other day, I had someone who's followed me since I was on BBC Radio Manchester, let alone Five Live, saying, oh, I didn't know you had a podcast. And you think, oh, my gosh, I thought I talked about it all the time. But no, Mm. you know, (laughs) clearly I don't. There are people who do not know that I have an award-winning podcast that I've been making for two and a half years, Mm. even though they follow me on social media. So I don't have an answer to that. It's incredibly Mm. hard. I mean, the things I mentioned at at the start can can work i found advertising doesn't work i've worked with some big clients here in the states who've put you know some actual well a big chunk of dollar behind advertising and i i don't think that's as as effective as getting smarter and working with other creators as creatives essentially in 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 um helping you spread your work but paying them for their time clearly it's a bit of a mean question really because i don't think there is an answer and a, a lot of the answer is a healthy dose of luck along with all the tips and tricks and having a great product in the first place i think it's Mm. it's one of those special source things that no one quite knows what the ingredients is yet no but i think you know i I remember being on five live you know and i I presented at the weekend on breakfast with chris warburton and you know he brought out the brilliant um end of days and well as along with another couple of podcasts he's made that are great as well but end of days you know it was there was trails for that every hour on five live that helps, mm. right? <laughs> you know, yeah. having yeah. <laughs> having a a radio station with five million people listening to it. So you mentioned Gemma Collins and BBC Sounds. You know, I mean, this is another debate uh, conversation I've been having here in the states with the way that you know these since podcasting has gone exploded. How many are there now? Three million? Something absolutely obscene. Mm. And you know, there are more than three million songs and books and films. So it's not like this is anything new. But you do say, well, okay, as an indie podcaster, as one of the smaller fish in the pond, how the heck? Do you compete with Wondery? How do you c- compete with BBC Sounds? How do you compete with NPR? And there is a real challenge of, you know, podcasts becoming homogenised, essentially, which will be really, really sad. And those really fantastic independent voices being drowned out by the big boys. And mm. that will be a real shame. But then I'd rather be the Pixies than Westlife. So, you know, hey-ho. <laughs> 
I mean, if you no were, disrespect to Westlow. Well, <laughs> if you always say, if you were an independent podcast, you are an independent podcaster, and you wanted to get the support of a big boy, a Spotify, a BBC, a crowd network, even, what would you be advising someone to consider before stepping into that pitch? How do they balance their creative idea and the potential for publicity and the commercial value and all the things that someone will be looking at when they are considering an idea and whether they want to invest in that? I think it just goes back to the story. Have you got a great engaging story that needs to be told? How do you want your audience to feel? How will that story fit in? You know, look around you. If it's if it's appearing that sort of story in 20 other places, well, don't do it. It's very challenging because I think it's easy as well. And I've had I've had friends here in the States who've got a bit lost by going to one of the big boys when they've gone, I love that idea. Let's just change that, 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 that and that. And they've gone, that's not my show anymore then, is it? Mm. You know, and so that I think there is also that challenge as well. I mean, every single pitching experience is different. And sometimes it is about landing the right person on the right day at the right time with the right idea. And, you know, we know that Squid Game tried to be made for 10 years. The creator of Squid Game went around to every studio for a decade and they all said no. So we know that if you've got a great idea, and I've got a couple of ideas that I have been so nearly close to with two really big providers. One of them even said yes and then stopped returning emails. I mean, it was just unbelievable. So, I mean, we've all been there with that great idea. And I wonder whether that idea will still get made. It's still there. It's still a great story. But sometimes you've just got to wait for the right time. Be your own squid game. Be a squid game. Yeah. There's, a, there's a meme in there somewhere. I can't quite work out what yeah. it is. Our time's almost up, but I just want to talk to you about the states and how the podcast market is out there at the moment. Because obviously you've mentioned already you've been in the states a few years, having previously worked in BBC and commercial radio over this side of the pond and explored podcasting. Now, we often look to the US as kind of the future of podcasting because it's a few years down the line in terms of its maturity, both financially and in terms of mm. the amount of investment that's going into the industry from a talent point of view. Do you see anything in the US market at the moment that makes you think the UK will move in a different direction going forward? Or is the way media is consumed, US versus UK, a bit different in terms of the US being more willing to accept advertising or pay for its content? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, if we could all see the future, then we'd be sitting in much bigger closets. Um, <laughs> but I think to go back to your first question, you know, the landscape here is completely different. It's so much bigger. I mean, you, it's it's the equivalent of a car, I suppose. It's the equivalent of a, you know, I remember one of the first times we came here and we hired an SUV. We were in, we were in Florida for two weeks, you know, with the family. And we'd hired this SUV which on you know looked on the site and he went oh there's two adults and two kids and we take my dad oh you'll you'll need a much bigger car and I was like really he was like oh you'll need a much bigger car and I went well can we have a look at the one we've got and then we can decide and we went to look at it it was enormous it was absolutely enormous I went why would we need a bigger car it's like eight <laughs> seats in it oh well just to be comfortable and that and that that wasn't their biggest car by any means and I think this is what it is you know I was when I first came here I looked at the budgets of the clients that I have in the UK for creating podcasts with them and they might be organizations or individuals and then you look at the budgets here and a lot of the shows I work on are for big magazines and very large corporations I mean, it's it's literally times ten the budget. It's mm. it's incre It's so different, and it's a different beast and a different feeling. But I think here, 
there is definitely, I mean, I was on a call yesterday with a very big media organization and they were saying there is no way we're not going to increase our podcasting next year at all because this is now just part of the landscape. It's part of the marketing budget. It has yeah. to be. Because if you, you're not in that space, you're not relevant. And it doesn't even mean... And they've been super smart in taking their content and they have very big name guests, like A-list celebrity guests. And so they will take that content and they'll make social videos out of it and they'll embed videos into the, you know, the website for their magazines. And, you know, they're super smart with the content. It isn't just let's record a podcast and release it. Thank you very much. Good night. It's a let's have an hour with this A-lister. What can we create from that hour? The podcast first, but let's be really smart about those other things. And so whilst their numbers of the podcast might not be the biggest in the world. It's the content they got from the process of recording and what else they can do with it and how they can get smart with that content for their audience, which means it is absolutely worth their while doing it. So I think if we're talking branded content, obviously, then that is where the UK really, really needs to catch up. But they need to spend the money mm. because there's a lot of, oh, well, it should only cost a few hundred quid an episode, shouldn't it? vibe that I've got from a few people and I've gone well yeah it's a bit like saying people will say how much is a podcast and I go well how much is a house mm. where is where is the house how many bedrooms do you want do you want to live in a shack or do you want to live in a mansion what do you want you know do you want to drive a Mercedes or do you want to drive a clapped out or whatever so you know there's obviously such differences in scale but when it comes to the I mean obviously I'm not in the UK anymore I don't know how the media landscape is going there in terms of organizations podcasting I mean I obviously see BBC sounds and what they're doing and some of the interesting decisions that have been made there uh but things like the Guardian I know for example have got a huge slate of podcasts now and I haven't dug into whether or not a lot of other media organizations are getting on board in quite the way they are here you can probably answer that more well, maybe we will on a future episode. Who yeah. knows? Um, Sam, pleasure to talk to you about American Vigilante and podcasting in general. Genuinely, it's been one of my favourite podcasts I've listened to in the last 12 months. I was hooked from it from episode one. What happens next? Is there more story to tell? Can it be a series? Can Casey reveal any more? Or is that kind of it? And it's on to the next thing. Well, that all depends on... I suppose the last few episodes of this season, there is more to come. There is something major coming, which um, you will hear in the next couple of weeks, uh, which affected me on a huge personal level, really, really affected me. One of the most, I think the, the biggest emotional reactions I've ever, ever, ever had to an interview in my wow. 20 odd years of broadcasting. So that was a big one. So, you know, we're talking, Casey calls me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> he called me at half past seven this morning and I was like, I'm I'm really busy today. Oh, I will speak soon, you know. So he still calls me a lot. There is definitely, definitely, definitely more story to tell. And I think whether we do and how those stories are told and what happens next needs to be decided in the next, you know, couple of months or whatever it might be. But there is, oh my gosh, so, so much to talk about. But we'll see. We'll see what the future holds where you can find American Vigilante wherever you find your podcast. You can also catch up on the award-winning Desert Diaries and you can find Sam at Walker Sam on Twitter if you want to find her and chat more about American Vigilante and our other podcast projects. Sam, fascinating to talk to you. Really appreciate your time on Sound Business. Good to speak to you, Jim. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's show. If you've not checked out American Vigilante yet, then please do so. Great podcast and a great example of storytelling too. 
and I've added a pod follow link in the description of this podcast to make it even easier to find it as well. There's loads more to come on this series as I tackle some of the big talking points, issues and innovations in audio. So follow this show for more of that as and when it comes out. And you can find more about the work we do at VoiceWorks on the website, voiceworks.ai. See you soon.